Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie and today's show is a talk given at the recent Animal Activist Forum in Melbourne. Brad King, who's the director of Farm Animal Rescue, that's a sanctuary in southeast Queensland, speaks about the horrors of farmed animals' genetic design. Now, Brad's original talk was supported by a PowerPoint presentation, so I've made some very minor edits just to make it a little bit more suitable for radio. So, here goes. As always, we can see that the Animal Activist Forum has put on an incredible event here. We're so very grateful for organisations like this that pull opportunities together like this because I'm sure you, like us, are uh, so very pleased to have an opportunity to swap knowledge and ideas and, um, and discuss new concepts and things. And, uh, of course, that's hopefully what we'll be able to contribute to today. So um, just a little bit about us. Farm Animal Rescue has been operating for five years. We're a purpose-built sanctuary um, that, we, that we founded, actually, with the port of some incredible southeast Queensland activists. Um, so we've always been a community organisation that has been basically a group of people from the community working together to make something um, that we think is really quite incredible happening. Um, and um, we, we founded it after experiences that I had with the Farm Sanctuary Organisation in New York, specifically with respect to their education programs. I, I recall one of their videos, which was of Maxine, who had escaped from New York City Live Market. The video um, actually showed a New York City animal control worker who was incredibly moved by what she'd found because she'd been working with dogs and cats her whole life. And it was so revealing for her to suddenly be in the position of having a cow in there who was as sweet and as scared as any of the dogs and cats that she normally dealt with were. Um, and that was, that was quite, uh, quite a moment for me because it was incredible to see somebody actually go through that process so very quickly of understanding just um, quite how important and relevant and um, individual and social farm animals are. Um, our, our belief in the way that we run things is that animals themselves are actually very, very powerful advocates on their own. Um, and that it's less about the fact that animals are voiceless so much as that most people are just not listening to what they have to say. Because there are many ways that animals tell us whether they're happy or not. Um, and, but, of course, we're, we're never really looking. So what we, what we do as an organisation is we use our, our on-farm experiences, we use lecture tours, uh, we use some street advocacy work um, to get the stories of sanctuary animals out there and, of course, to talk about some of the, the conditions and the procedures in industry, as well as talking about some of the genetic manipulation that's gone on with these animals. Now, while there are many positive experiences to be had with running a sanctuary, of course, we have just as many sad and soul-destroying stories. Um, in, indeed, I've left the farm this week with uh, at least five chickens between the ages of three weeks and three years old out of a block of 33 birds on medication. Two of these are quite possibly heading for euthanasia, two for surgery, and there's one who will definitely be on medication for the rest of her life. Have they been injured? No, they haven't. 
They are presenting systems that are inherent to the generic design of so many of these animals that causes them to grow faster or lay more or whatever it is else it is we want these creatures to do. The birds that we see, of course, in the farms these days actually bear very little resemblance to their ancestors, and uh, many of them will suffer and die in ways that the media, farmers, and vets just don't normally talk about. It is therefore our job to know about these modifications and their impact and to spread the horror of these manipulations to other people. Now, battery cages have been in the public eye for quite some time. Um, battery cages are, of course, indeed horrid creations and that house nothing but frustrated, distressed, and hopeless birds that really don't understand that this can possibly be their existence. However, choosing to advocate solely on battery cages really ignores a greater evil. The red jungle fowl, which uh, is the ancestor of the modern land hen, sorry, I want to walk away from the lectern, I can't, um, is, is a natural lifespan of somewhere between 12 to 15 years of age um, and lays about 12 eggs a year. Egg laying, after all, is not a natural thing for chickens. It's what they usually do 12 times a year to make new chickens. Um, the model commercial hens, of course, lay over 300 eggs a year. This incredible strain on the reproductive systems results in a high likelihood of medical problems at somewhere between 18 months and three years of age. Of course, some exhibit these symptoms earlier and others exhibit them later. The high calcium feeds, though, that we use to encourage these animals to be as healthy as they possibly can are then very taxing on their liver and kidneys with a growing number of egg-laying hens, both at sanctuaries and in commercial farms, suffering from kidney and liver diseases at very young ages. This is, of course, why all the commercial egg farms destroy their hens at just 18 months old. The looming illness that they will start to get to from the point of 18 months, the industry doesn't want to deal with. And, of course, it's much easier for them just to pull them all out and put in a whole pile of new chicks. Um, because, as we know, um, new chicks are very, very cheap. The only cost really is, um, is the life of a rooster, and of course they just go in the shredder. Um, now, when an animal has been bred in such a way that their life is so incredibly painful and sustainable, does the confinement system really matter? Because they're in pain from the day, well, not necessarily the day they're born, but at some point in their lives they're going to be in terrible pain, very, very short lives, and the truth is that these animals ultimately will be suffering whether they're on green grass or in a battery cage. Now, this, uh, this image, of course, is from a cage-free farm. Um, now, battery cage uh, campaigns have uh, arguably been one of the more successful campaigns that have come out of um, animal activism, um, prompting even some of us to shout victory when a retailer transition from um, cage to cage-free eggs. But are we really clear why the cage-free system is better? From a human's perspective, of course, when we look at it, we say, well, not being in a cage is much better than being in a cage, so that's all good news. Um, but have we ever really thought this through? Anybody in the room not heard of the pecking order? Everybody's heard of the pecking order. That's wonderful. So it's really important if I'm a hen to know if I'm number one or number nine or number 986. So when I'm in a cage-free farm, which means I'm most of the time in a shed with 10,000 other hens in it, I'm trying to establish a pecking order of where I sit between the number one and the number 100,000, sorry, the number 10,000. And all of the hens at the same time, of course, are trying to establish their, hen, their, um, their positioning in the flock. Now, each individual hen will therefore spend their day either pecking others or being pecked. So all that they know about is either being aggressive or somebody being aggressive to them. Can you imagine how long it takes to establish a pecking order between 10,000 birds? I can assure you it's going to be a lot longer than 18 months. 
So, of course, when hens move from a battery cage environment to a non-battery cage environment, this is, this is where they end up. This is what is, um, you know, ar ar argued to be the better place. Um, now, we experience a lot of these birds at sanctuary. We take into sanctuary both birds from battery cages and from the cage-free farms. Um, battery cage hens will arrive and they'll settle into sanctuary life really quite um, nicely. They're very social. They're very happy birds um, once, they, once they get going and understand dirt bathing and all that sort of thing. The cage-free hens come in and we call them warrior ninja chickens. They are ripping feathers out. They are gouging holes in the other chickens. We've had hens come in from the cage-free barns with eyes missing. Um, all that they have known their entire lives is, is to either be aggressive or to hide from the aggression. Imagine if you were to live in a, in a large crowded room with 10,000 others with no means of escape. Is that really worse than living in a small cage with five other friends? I am in no way saying that battery cages are good. But what I'm asking us to do is to look at, you know, is, is one really better or is one uh, different than the other? Coming away from this and coming back to what I'm talking about with genetics, though, let's remember that all of these birds are born with these same predisposed conditions. At some point, they're going to get tumors. At some point, they're going to get infections in their reproductive systems. And the infections in their reproductive systems are awful. When these things happen, what fundamentally happens is they start to rot from the inside out. There can be very few things that would be less painful, of course, than um, that happening to people. Indeed, Dr. Donald C. Lay from Purdue University, after completing research on exactly this subject, stated that there is no single housing system that is ideal from a hen welfare perspective. So he's a, he's a full carnivore, um, but uh, he came to the conclusion and he said, well, there's no point even trying to do something about welfare because basically there is no system that supports it. Moving on from eggs, of course, I have to go to dairy. The, the image that you see here depicts two of our dairy industry escapees. Fiona on the left, yes, um, who uh, was rescued from a filthy crate with acid burns to 40% of her body. And Alfie, who we were able to rescue because he has the fortune of being bitten by a paralysis tick um, and uh, the slaughterhouses therefore wouldn't pay anything for him. The photo was taken shortly after Fiona had been uh, ramming the gate to our nursery paddock while Alfie was recuperating. Rather than lose the gate, we decided to let her in, and uh, Alfie uh, immediately had an adopted mum. So the picture that you see here, of course, is their first meeting. Um, of course, crating is common in the dairy industry for girls. That stops them being able to drink from their mother's milk, because, of course, mum's milk has to go to the grocery stores. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, all dairy industry calves, especially if they're girls, are raised on soy-based formula as opposed to dairy products. Um, I'm sure you know the statistics. Dairy cattle are designed to produce four to six times more milk than a calf would normally suckle. Um, dairy cattle are pregnant more than nine months out of every year. They are milked for 11 months of the year, and babies are removed generally somewhere between two hours and six days after birth. These are fundamentals of the dairy industry. There is nothing that could be changed about this if there is a dairy industry. Now, modern-day genetics, of course, have designed a cow now that firstly takes all of the vitamins and minerals that she consumes and first sends it on to that milk production. What's left over from that, of course, will then be passed on to the baby that will be growing inside her for most of the period that she's being milked. And anything that's left over then, of course, will go to the mother. Now, this is Anne-Marie when she was first rescued after nine years in the dairy industry. Um, as you can see, deficient in most minerals, she had basically no fur and no fat on her. Um, she actually had huge teeth marks on the outside of her udder and the inside of her legs, 
and she carried infections in three quarters of her udder, which is, of course, where they were milking her from. It's a gorgeous thing, it really is. Um, in this picture, of course, you can also see a number of skin infections and you can also see ringworm as well. Um, Amory, of course, was not only nutritionally deprived, but, of course, she was tortured by the removal of her babies as well. This is a species that absolutely dotes on children. Please don't listen to anybody in the dairy industry trying to tell you that these animals have no maternal instinct because I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. So these, of course, are female calves. So these are the ones that the farmers love and want to look after because they produce milk. Um, now, crating of female calves occurs throughout Australia. And, of course, for every crated um, calf, there will be somewhere a distraught mother. Um, okay, so uh, this baby boy is, uh, of course, tied up waiting for the slaughterhouse trucks to arrive. Um, we all know that this is an incredibly vicious and evil industry, possibly more so than any of the others. But we have all likely under, in, underestimated the impact that this actual loss actually has on the mothers and the herd that they belong to in general. So that video is of Anne-Marie. So she's the cow that you saw earlier with no fur. As you can see, she's got some now. So that was great news for us. Um, and Bambi. Um, Anne-Marie is much better now, but she suffers from a skin condition. She has mastitis, arthritis, and very poor bone density. You might have noticed that she's lost a little bit of horn there on the side. Um, now, Bambi, who was the little girl with her, was uh, living in a neighboring paddock to the sanctuary uh, with her mom and dad. Um, but suddenly, we started seeing little Bambi in our paddocks. So we would go, we'd, we'd go along the fence, we'd find out where she broke in, we'd fix the fence, we'd send Bambi back, and two days later, Bambi would be back again. Um, so this went on for, oh, I, I don't know, a month or so, um, until we basically fixed all of the fence, and there was no more fence that she could possibly break through. Um, and on the next day, Bambi climbed over the fence. I have never seen a cow climb a fence before. Um, astonished, we looked into what was going on with her, and we, we then found out that her mother had died three months earlier. Our Anne-Marie had actually been pregnant not long before that, and unfortunately, because of the state that she was in, her baby did ultimately not survive. Um, somehow, Anne-Marie and Bambi decided together to fill what was missing in both of their lives, and they now happily run free on our paddocks as basically a mother and an adopted daughter. They like the good stuff better. <laughs> now, the big guy on the right here is Murray. He's the leader of our herd. You can say all, because it's a beautiful photo, isn't it? <laughs> um, Kale on the left is a recent dairy industry rescue. A week before this photo was taken, neither of them knew each other. We weren't surprised, though, at Murray's care for babies. We have had an issue for a little while with Murray where if any of our neighbours, because, of course, we're surrounded by cattle properties, um, if any of our neighbours bring orphan calves onto their farms and they cry, Murray will quite delicately go to tear up the fence, get the calf, and bring them back to his herd. <laughs> now, this is Sam and his um, mother, Precious, when Sam was one month old. Um, Precious has often been very mistrusting of us, and she would hide her baby for months on end soon after he was born. If we ever, and of course we got really concerned because we could never find him. Um, so if we, when we were looking for him, if we got near to him, she'd run over and she'd stand in front of him and say, go away, you horrible people. Um, his mother had come from an Angus beef ranch, so I guess we can kind of understand that. Um, and um, Sam was born at Sanctuary after um, mother had been rescued and, um, and got to, uh, to where we are. Sadly, when Sam turned two years old, he was struck by a disease called lumpy jaw. Um, it's a horrible disease. What it does is it gets into the bones in the jaw. It starts to distend and change the shape of the jawline. 
event, it makes it very, very difficult for them to consume food and ultimately, of course, ends up blocking their, um, their throats. We managed to get through, Sam, through the next year with a variety of different grain and liquid-based feeds until it became clear that he was becoming very, very distressed at not being able to eat grass like all the others and have a, have a normal life. Um, and um, at one point, of course, his, the, his ability to consume anything was just so terribly compromised, we, we had to take the kinder option rather than let him just simply starve to death. Um, throughout this ordeal, his mother was incredible. I'm not talking about a baby calf. I'm talking about a three-year-old full-grown steer. But right throughout this ordeal, his mother would care for him and look after him. He would sometimes just stay behind the rest of the herd. Mom would always go and get him and she'd bring him back to the herd. Sometimes he'd go away and he'd sit down away from the herd. And we saw multiple times mom go and get him and bring him back to the others. Um, it didn't matter to her that he was a three-year-old full-grown steer. He was still her baby. Eventually, of course, as I was saying, it was time to let him go. Uh, we did this with his mother by his side. We didn't want it to happen in secret away from her. And then we let her in to mourn. And again, I want to remind you that this is not a baby calf. This is a three-year-old fully-grown steer. And uh, we all find this very distressing. But um, it's actually the first time we've ever shown this video. Hopefully you got the sense of that. At least that, um, that was uh, how it is. Um, but uh, as you can see, Precious came over to Sam and, um, and she comforted him for a while. Again, three years old, beef cattle go to slaughter at 18 months of age, just to put some context on that. After Precious had finished her time with her Sam, she went back to the herd, and then we started to relocate, relocate the carcass to the front of the property because, of course, once you euthanize an animal, you have to have the carcass removed. Um, Precious, not surprisingly, did follow us up to check on him and then return to the herd. What we were not expecting was half an hour later, Precious turned up again with the entire herd with her. The herd sat with him overnight until he left the following morning. These animals are incredible friends and incredible family with each other. They dote on each other. They value the relationships that they have and they value each other. We have seen these animals create babysitting rosters. We've seen them sit in circles around new baby calves that have been brought into the sanctuary to keep them safe. We've seen them tear through gates and fences to rescue baby calves, as I mentioned. And um, we've seen two mothers now, unfortunately, sit in depression for weeks when their babies have died. It doesn't matter if a baby's taken in one week or three years. The way they value each other and grieve for their loss is really the same. While the inhumanity of slaughter, deforestation, dehorning, neutering, forced insemination, and everything else that goes along with it is also vile, the one intrinsic element of the dairy and beef industries, the slaughter and separation of children, friends, and family for cattle, really is the greatest horror of all. And there is no beef or dairy industry without that very essential thing happening. This is the beautiful Heather. Um, pigs, of course, you'll be aware, are the fourth most intelligent animal on the planet. Um, and I say that regardless of what the elephant lobbies say, because they now want to make elephants the fourth smartest, but we're going to stick with pigs. Um, they have the same cognitive ability as three-year-old human children. They're socially complex. They have a language that consists of 30 different sounds. They, uh, and when I say they're socially complex, I mean they will be best friends one day. They will hate each other the next day. The day after that, two of them will gang up on another one. And the day after that, they just want to be alone. Um, they love people. We have wild pigs that come into our cattle paddocks, and they love people too. Don't, don't believe what you're told about feral pigs. 
These animals, of course, could all bite your leg off. They have incredibly strong jaws and a lot of artillery in there, but all they want is belly rubs, and there's nothing that they like more than to tell us about what's been happening in their day. They share 98% of human DNA. They have human eyes, skin, and organs. They share our diet. We feed our guys muesli and apples. Now, the large white pig, which all of our pigs are, is, uh, is a large animal, and it's native to the rivers of Scandinavia. However, of course, they're not like they used to be either. So they have been designed to become obese, and they've been designed to grow very quickly. This leaves sanctuaries with a hugely complex problem as we end up with a very heavy animal with a very long spine and very weak bones. Many sanctuary pigs will succumb to cardiac arrest, breathing problems, spinal breakage, bone breakage, generally before they become around about six years old. Their natural lifespan, of course, in the wild is 12 years, um, but all factories will slaughter them somewhere between six and 12 months of age. Sore joints, leg deformities, walking difficulties, pressure sores are likely. Um, indeed, you can see that there are many texts um, that talk about um, breeding sow pressure sores when they're, when they're put into the crates that they're often kept in. Um, now, in the past, there has been um, activism around pig factories um, to encourage farms to gravitate to free-range facilities. Um, we have a facility not far from the sanctuary called Tong Park. It's the largest uh, pig breeding facility in Queensland. It has 16,000 breeding sows on 250 acres. Um, this is the largest facility in Queensland, but it is not the largest facility in Australia. At any one point, there are around 80,000 pigs living on that property. Now, if you don't have a piggery license in Australia, you're required to provide one acre of land for each pig that you have. If that standard were applied to Tong Park, they would need to relocate their property to an 80,000-acre one from their current 250 acres. I have to tell you, this is not going to happen. Now, pigs are incredibly clean animals that always take themselves outside to go to the bathroom. They're able to smell food one metre under the ground, yet these creatures who are so fastidious with their cleanliness are forced to live in these factories, of course, in their own waste. With their elevated sense of smell, can you imagine how disgusting this must be for them? There really is no alternative to a world that wants pig bacon. We're never going to see a world where there's going to be one pig per acre, and of course they only live six to 12 months anyway. Um, like the chickens that we were talking about, these are Frankenstein animals that are in pain with joint sores and pressure sores and whatever else they may be for almost their entire lives. And the only thing that will ever put these pigs out of their, their misery is for these genetic strains to be discontinued. This beautiful guy is Moby. Uh, Moby's a two-and-a-half-year-old large white that has um, joined the sanctuary. He's 290 kilos. Uh, Moby contains the very latest strain of pig factory DNA, which we did not even know was in Australia. Um, it came, it's come from America. Moby has three more ribs than our other large white pigs. Of course, this is to satisfy the increasing rib meal demand across multiple continents that exist now. This is absolutely devastating for his longevity. His longer spine makes the propensity for spinal breakage, of course, almost a certainty for him. He ha already has trouble walking, and quite frankly, when you see him walk, it's like his back legs are operating in a different time zone. They're so far away from his head. Um, the desire of the pork industry to call pork a white meat and so differentiate from their, their product from beef has led to decades of selective breeding to create a whiter and whiter pig. 
Um, the white, large white pig now used in factories and that we have in our sanctuaries now has almost no pigment, which makes them incredibly susceptible to sunburn. Their genetics, quite frankly, are a disaster. Of course, it doesn't matter so much to the factories because they don't allow the pigs to go outdoors. But of course, when we're trying to give them a natural life, it becomes a, a huge issue for us. Um, but when you take that into consideration with the likelihood of skin cancer, the strain on their hearts, the strain on their skeletal structures, this is an animal that cannot feasibly survive in the longer term. As it is for broiler chickens, of course, we now have the 35-day variety in Australia. This animal grows from being a baby chicken to becoming an overweight, full-grown chicken with an enormously heavy breast in just 35 days. We've noted significant differences in the longevity and health between the 35 and 42-day varieties. Vets working in the broiler field um, estimate that around one-third of broiler hens of the 30-day variety are lame or partially lame before they go to slaughter. The genetic alterations have been very effective in the rapid growth of meat and muscle, but bones take longer to grow and the bones don't keep up. The lameness is most often because of joints that no longer fit together, which causes a devastating amount of inflammation. So we might have thought that when we see um, chickens do that in the, in the broiler sheds, that it's because they can't walk. It's actually a deep and searing pain that is keeping those birds on the ground. In these factories, of course, they are in so much pain that they will die of starvation, dehydration, or trampling, rather than actually try to use these legs, which are causing them such a huge issue. Um, for those that don't develop walking issues, of course, it's even worse, because the breasts have been targeted to grow enormously because everybody wants the breast meat. What this means is that once they get past their 35 days, if sanctuaries are trying to look after them, um, the breast meat will actually start to grow into the lung cavities, which then, of course, restricts their lung function. Um, and this, of course, will ultimately bring about cardiac arrest or suffocation. I'm sure you're aware that sanctuaries do a lot of work with these animals, trying to reduce diet and do everything that we can to, um, to not have these things happen. But this is the, what they have been designed to do, and we're always fighting against all the science Sorry, when we do that. Now, a free-range broiler chicken, let me just tell you, is a complete and utter joke. Up until 21 days, these animals are technically chicks, which means they require very, very strict climate control. So during that period, depending on exactly how old they are, they'll always need to be somewhere between 26 and 34 degrees centigrade. So that means that unless you're way up in tropical northern Cairns, um, for the first 21 days, your free-range broiler chickens never get to go outside because they have to be in a climate-controlled environment. The two weeks, of course, that they may actually be able to go outside will generally be riddled with some sort of pain and confusion. And, of course, they have this compulsion and this requirement to just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. Yep, so this is Marigold. Uh, we are incredibly lucky to have Marigold at Sanctuary as she is an almost completely natural dorper sheep. She's large, she's muscular, she's active, and she's very wary of human beings. She kicks, she bites, and she tramples on stuff. The most important element of her genetics, though, is her ability to actually shed her own fur. So way back in time, and I'm actually talking BC here, this is how long people have been trying to selectively breed sheep. Um, all sheep shed their fur like every other creature on the planet. Of course, after a millennia of selective breeding, we now have these sheep that no longer shed their fur at all. If they aren't being looked after by people, they don't survive. Um, 
And, of course, we now end up with these human-bred sheep, which, by comparison, are small, dumpy, unathletic, and tend to be very, very trusting. Of course, more recently, what we decided to do was to breed sheep with wrinkled skin. The reason we bred them with wrinkled skin, of course, is if you've got more skin, more skin guess what? You have more wool coming out of it. Um, this change, however, is uniquely responsible for fly strike, which is where fly eggs are laid into the wrinkled skin. And, of course, this is the reason for mulesing. So when the industry say to us, well, we have to mules the sheep because otherwise they're going to get fly strike, what they tend to ignore is the fact that they made sheep this way in the first place. And if they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have been subject to it. Um, mulesing, of course, is done with no anaesthetic or antibiotics. It's the best way, um, it's the best way as far as industry is concerned of dealing with it. Um, of course, though, if you go to um, any of your lovely local sanctuaries, you'll probably find that sanctuaries are not mulesing their sheep. Um, we tend to like using um, procedures like, I don't know, looking after them a bit. Oh, so, you know, this is Lily, and we do love her dearly, but, of course, when I'm talking about little, dumpy, friendly sheep, um, Lily is probably the definition of it. They are, they, they are lovely. Um, of course, the natural dorper that we saw before doesn't get fly strike. Lily certainly would if we weren't taking steps to uh, make sure that didn't happen. Uh, but the reality is that, again, we've created another species that simply cannot survive because of the things that we've done to them. They are literally only good for the wool industry and nothing else. Now, goats, of course, the third largest live export market out of Australia. About half of these goats are wild caught as opposed to being farmed. Um, little Lucy in this video was hidden by her mother when she was 16 hours old because trucks came along to round up the wild pack of goats. Um, of course, Lucy's mother never returned because um, Lucy's mom was taken away and no doubt put on the ships. Three days later, Lucy got herself up. She went running into the house next door. Unable to eat or drink at this time and with a dangerously low temperature, she was brought straight to us. Lucy would not take a bottle. Um, she insisted on eating grass. Of course, a three-year-old baby goat is not able to derive any nutrition from grass, um, but she was doing this, of course, because you see that was the other goats did. Um, Lucy is now an integral part of the sanctuary goat herd, and she's as playful and mischievous as the others. Most of the sanctuary goats that we have are live export escapees um, who have managed to avoid being put on the ships. Um, the goat industry, however, now has a goat that produces four to six times more milk than a kid would normally suckle. Um, goat meat is now also the fastest growing animal protein sector in Australia. So we've got bored with all the others and now we're going to start on goats. Um, with goats, the genetic manipulation, removing babies from mothers and all of the other standard industry horrors are now starting to be applied. Um, these animals, when we're talking about goats, are people loving puppy dogs and it's so very sad to see yet another species fall under the interest of the Australian animal, animal agriculture industry. And, of course, they're not alone. We know camels now um, are being brought in to be farmed, and it just goes on and on and on. Now, we have work to do. And what I want to talk to you about is involving sanctuaries in your activism. Australia is now blessed with a network of sanctuaries from coast to coast, and all sanctuaries want to work with you to, for, so that we can collectively create a better world for these poor suffering creatures. We encourage all activists to learn about animal behaviours and genetic design from sanctuaries and use this information in your activism to help people understand why we are passionate about changing hearts and minds. Your activism and your work in creating programs like this one that we operate in Brisbane are essential to engaging people on the subject of animals used for agriculture.
But once you get started, a sanctuary visit really is a wonderful way to seal the deal. Now, Children's Charities learned um, years ago that talking about 300,000 starving children, or in our case, a million slaughtered animals, is not as effective as the power of one. At our open days, we tell our stories of Fiona, of Anne-Marie, of Moby, um, and of Peter the broiler chicken that you saw there. We also tell these stories on streets, to friends, and whenever we get the opportunity. When people meet these animals after having heard about them, they always want what is best for them. I urge you to include sanctuary knowledge, information, stories, and visits in any advocacy campaign that you're working on where a better world for farm animals is your target. Now, there is, of course, no licensing or accreditation system for sanctuaries. You need to use your own judgment as to which sanctuaries you choose to work with. Australia is blessed with a growing number of ethical sanctuaries, but you should consider some um, factors, of course, when choosing your sanctuary partner. Um, there are a small number of farm animal type zoos that try to use the sanctuary tag to try to, uh, to, try to get you to basically come and give them money. Um, first thing, of course, to remember is sanctuaries do not breed. We're all about saving all the animals that we can, and every animal bred, of course, is one place less for rescue. So if you're breeding, you're not really rescuing. Ethical sanctuaries will always have some kind of advocacy program, even if it's as simple as just Facebook posts about animal issues. If there's an adoption program, you should expect to see a process of vetting of adoptees and the rules they must abide by. Animals, of course, should not be used for exhibition, and when you attend tours, they should be respectful of the animals and not force human interaction. And of course, and I know this sounds obvious, but believe me, do they're not all, they should be vegan. If they're eating their hen's eggs or drinking their cow's milk or even selling their sheep's wool, this is probably not a place that you want to bring people to if you're trying to make them vegan. Sorry if that's a bit obvious. Okay. Now, of course, sanctuaries are expensive to run. They require staffing dawn to dusk 365 days a year. There is never a day off. We exist to help you with your work, where we are places of learning and contemplation, and we need your involvement to fulfill our promise to each animal that we can't take in through our front gates. And that promise, of course, is that we will stop all of this. Come to sanctuaries to learn the stories and the behaviours. Research the genetic modifications yourself because there's so much more than even what I've covered today. Um, because it all makes life so difficult for these incredible creatures who were previously so beautifully designed by nature and um, still greet everybody with a smile and... Um, of course, we should also be greeting everybody with a smile and with empathy. Our movement is on the side of right. It's on the side of compassion. It's on the side of renewed humanity. Sanctuaries can help you get there. I want to thank you for being part of this event. I want to thank you for coming to hear about our approach to advocacy. And I want to thank you for everything you are going to do through the next year for animals. I'm in absolute awe of all of you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. That last track was Stephanie Mills with Never Knew Love Like This Before. That's it for today. Thank you to Brad King and to the Animal Activist Forum. And you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can contact us by email, info at freedomofspecies.org. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.